morning's sermon is, I lack nothing. I lack nothing. And this is going to be based on Psalm 23, verse 1. I thought it was fitting if the young people in our church and some of the surrounding churches are becoming more familiar with Psalm 23. I decided I was going to take a, a break before moving on to Second John and Third John, which is my plan, but be praying about that. I pray that I'd make plans in pencil, uh, but also pray that the Lord would just make it clear what he wants us to move on to in our Bible studies here next. But I plan on going through Psalm 23 here as a mini-series. Now, just because I've been had it so much on my mind and I've been at, I've been at camp and I'll continue to be at camp and I'll have heard it taught by a variety of different teachers two or three different times and it's put a lot of thoughts in my mind and it's also been very, very encouraging to me. So that's what we're going to do for the next probably, I'm estimating, six lessons or so that I teach. But I lack nothing. When I think about Psalm 23, verse 1, another reason that I wanted to share the whole psalm with you, but especially this verse, is I was told that this was my grandmother's favorite verse. This is my mom's mom. And she was always a very positive and influential person in my life. She was a believer. She shared a lot of God's truth with me. She sang a lot of songs with me. In fact, I think a fair amount of my interest in singing could be tied back to my grandmother's interest in music and singing. And she was also one of these people who didn't mind lying to children. And what I mean by that is... (laughs) She actually led me to believe at a young age that I was a pretty good singer. And she would record me singing songs because she liked to listen to them uh, when I wasn't there. And so those uh, kind of cherished memories I have of my grandmother, but this was apparently her favorite verse. And I asked my mom, why was this her favorite verse? Wasn't, wasn't it Psalm 23 that was her favorite? And she said, no, it was Psalm 23 verse 1 that was her favorite And apparently when asked why it wasn't the whole psalm that was her favorite, she said, because you don't need anything else besides Psalm 23, verse 1. And I think that'll come out here as we look at Psalm 23, verse 1. And that's not to say there's not a tremendous amount of value in the rest of the psalm or I wouldn't teach through the rest of it too. Uh, But when you think about Psalm 23, verse 1, several translations of the Bible, uh, several of the English translations, and I had mentioned to this to you previously in other messages, but they, they've translated Psalm 23.1 a little bit differently than we have it. So in our Bibles, we have, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But many other versions have, Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And that's an attempt to modernize language. I lack nothing. And so that's why I have an exclamation point. I know I didn't say it with a lot of enthusiasm, but I lack nothing. And I hope if, if you take nothing else away from this message, you would see that because of God's provision for your every need, you lack nothing. As you're going through and living life in a world that says you can never be satisfied, as you're constantly reminded that you've come up short, that you're inadequate, that there must be something else that's missing in your life. And if you could only get a hold of it, if you could only grasp it, then you could find contentment and purpose and meaning and joy and happiness in your life. And of course, that's Satan's lie, that there's no way to experience satisfaction or a full life, a life that is overflowing. Versus the Bible tells us that because of God's provision for us, our cup is overflowing. It's not just filled up, it's filled to the point of overflowing. That God has given us absolutely everything that we need. And as a child of God, both in the past, in the present, and in the future, which we'll get into here this morning, God has provided everything that we need such that we could confidently as children of God say, I lack nothing. No matter what we're going through, no matter what our circumstances are, that is what we could say. And consider the peace and the rest that accompanies that perspective. If you're sitting there and able to take in what God is communicating through his word in Psalm 23.1 this morning, 
Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And if that is true and you can take that in, imagine the peace and rest that accompanies that. That sense of, I can finally relax. I can finally have this sense of closure, if you will, that there in fact isn't something more to chase after. You know, we go around chasing our tails. The world encourages us to keep chasing after. But the word of God says, there's nothing left to run after. You've been given everything that you need for this life and for the eternity to follow by my gracious provision for you. Now when you see this phrase, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Also notice the certainty, the confidence in that statement. It's stated as a fixed fact. It's not a statement of ambiguity or a statement of possibility. It's a statement of certainty. And so you could say it a different way. You could say, because the Lord is my shepherd, I might have everything I need. But it doesn't say that. It says, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing as a statement of fact. There's no ambiguity. There's no uncertainty in it. And when you think about a statement like this, I lack nothing, from the world's point of view, this is a statement of absolute impossibility. Best case scenario from the world's point of view it would be aspirational. It would be something that you're targeting, that you're, you're shooting for, this idea of being fully satisfied. But the idea that it could be grasped, grasped or that you could attain that perspective or have that point of view or present state of being in life, absolutely impossible from the world's point of view. And that's why you hear songs like, I looked here and I looked here and I looked there and I looked there and I looked over here and over there and as the Bono from U2 said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The world isn't in a, pers- in a place to confidently say, I lack nothing. You see, apart from a right relationship with God, man is never satisfied or content. Now that starts with having a relationship with God and then understanding what a right relationship with God would look like in terms of Christian living, living the Christian life the way that God intended. But apart from that, man could never be content or satisfied. Man keeps chasing after something he can never really grasp. He searches high. He searches low. He searches near. He searches far. But lasting satisfaction remains elusive. And you think about that from the Christian's perspective. It doesn't need to be elusive in a practical way in a Christian's life. Think about the positional reality of every man or woman of faith. From a, pers- from a positional perspective, every single person who has put their faith in Christ's finished work on their behalf, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, every person who has put their, all of their eggs in that basket, depending on what Christ did for them as he died in their place on Calvary and paid for not some of their sins, but all of their sins, and says, whoever will believe this will be born into my family, and I'll never let them go. Every person who has done that positionally is in a place to say, I lack nothing. That is absolutely true whether you believe it or not, whether you're appropriating it in the moment or not. You lack nothing if you're God's child because God is the perfect parent. God being the perfect perfect parent is in a position to make sure that you're not missing anything. And so, so often the Christian, now on a practical level, ends up thinking just like the world, ends up having that perverted mindset where you start to believe that I'm really missing out on something. You're not missing out on anything. God has given you everything that you need for a life that pertains to godliness. He's given you all that you need. You lack absolutely nothing. So it's not a question of, is it true? It's a question of, will I presently accept that as being true in my life? Will I accept that by faith? Does this perspective now represent my practical reality? Now it can and it should, but does it? And it's impossible for you to ever have that perspective in a practical way. It is always true, it's always a positional truth because God didn't stutter. He didn't miss anything. He didn't forget about anything. 
He provided you with everything that you need. But from a practical perspective, it's going to always be impossible for you to accept that if you don't recognize what God has done for you in the past, what he continues to do for you in the present, and what one day he will do for you in the future. And so that's the underlying focus of Psalm 23. That because the Lord is my shepherd, and then that's true positionally, and I would say this is the way to say it presently, when I'm recognizing or living life as if the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now you lack nothing, again, positionally either way. So the rest of the psalm then goes on, and this, that's why this Psalm 23.1 is a summary of everything that's to come. So Psalm 23.1, it gives us this statement of just, more concise summary and then it'll go on to give us specific examples of why the one who has the Lord as his shepherd lacks absolutely nothing. It'll go through a number of different clauses that bring out different aspects of what God has done to provide fully for every need of his children. We are his people and the sheep of his passion. When you see yourself as a sheep who God is his shepherd, then you'll see, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to direct myself in any way. I don't need to provide for myself anyway. I don't need to protect myself in any way. I don't need to discipline myself in any way or correct myself in any way. God is going to undertake to do all of that for me. And he's going to do that in a way that is perfect. If I were to try to do that, if you were to try to do that, it's invariably going to be flawed. It's invariably going to fall short because you're imperfect. But God, being perfect, is in, is in a much better position to shepherd you, provide for you, lead you, protect you, discipline you, challenge you, and others that will come across as we go through the psalm. So that's sort of the takeaway. If I end up losing you here this morning as we go through some of the specifics in this miniseries, I want you to just keep that translation, that, that more modern translation in your mind. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Let's take a closer look at this general principle. So the first part of God having met every single one of man's need, God being the shepherd, and because he's the shepherd and he's the good shepherd and he's given his life for the sheep, it started there at a point in time where he wanted to prov provide for man's past need. And so God being the perfect shepherd, for you to say I lack nothing, God would have had to provide it for your past need, which we'll talk about here. He'll, he would have had to provide for your present need, and he'll have to provide for your future need as well. And so what was that need? Well, this is the message of the gospel. I hope that if you're here this morning, this isn't news to you. I hope that you understand the good news of the gospel, what Christianity is really all about. You see, what Christianity is really all about is it's a message of hope. It's a message of rescue. It's a message of good news about how God did for man what man could never do for himself and continues to do for man what man could never do for himself. It's a wonderful message of freedom. It gives us freedom because now we can stop trying to do for ourselves what we could never be successful at anyway. It gives us this opportunity to experience the rest and freedom that comes from abandoning self, giving up on self, saying, I give up in, in, in effect. I can't do this. Waving the white flag, so to speak. And saying, Lord, I need you. I don't need you just some of the time. Lord, I need you all of the time. I need you to direct and provide and, and undertake and lead. I need you to be the one that does those things because I could never do them for myself. Well, what was man's past need? This is the basics of the gospel message. The basics of the good news, it starts with a point in time decision to put your, plate, your trust in what Christ has done for you, but it begs the question, why did Christ need to do anything for you? If Christ says, I'm the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep, why would the good shepherd had to, have to have died for the sheep? Why would, he had to, why would he have had to give his life for you? Well, it's because the, the news or the story of our birth on earth, it's, it's sort of a sad story. It's bad news, really. You see, we were born identified with the race of Adam. But more important than that, we were born identified with a race of sinners. We were born identified with sin. 
brokenness, imperfection. The Bible tells us that we were born, all of us, were unclean things. And that there was none of us that was seeking after God, but that all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible went on to say there was none righteous, no, not one. Said that all we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned everyone to his own way. Not some, all and everyone. There was no exceptions to it. So the Bible says that for as by one man, Adam's sin had entered into the world. And what came with that original sin or that choice of Adam is that it spread to all men. By birth and by choice, the idea of choosing self over cho- instead of choosing to trust God, that became something that characterized every man, woman, and child on planet earth. So we came by it naturally in the sense that we were born into a race just like Adam, where that death spread to all men because all sinned. We, we sinned by making choices ourselves to disregard what God said and put more confidence in our own wisdom, our own understanding. And so that death that the Bible speaks about, that is separation from God. What came with sin was death. There was this separation between man and God. So if you're going to picture it in the air, one day I'll get around to actually having a slide for this. But the reality is, as you're trying to picture this, you have man here. Imagine a little man here. Give him a name. Let's call him Guy, because that's what my coach, who couldn't get my name right, used to call me Guy. Good job, Guy. (laughs) My geometry teacher used to call me Gust. So don't complain about people butchering your name. It happens. Anyway, Guy, we got Guy down here. But Guy, because of his sinful choices and being born into a race of sinners, he's identified with sin, what's imperfect. But what do we know about God? So if we have God, if we draw God up here, maybe we make a little triangle, label it God. We draw this up here. What do we know about God? Well, God is perfect. One of the things about God is he's perfect and we refer to that as being holy. He's set apart. He's completely separate from sin. He's perfectly righteous is another attribute of God. So if God is perfectly righteous, if God is also holy, God cannot be tainted by sin. So if man is identified with sinfulness and God is identified with righteousness or holiness, how can sinful man come into close relationship with God or be where God is without it tainting God's holiness? It can't. God cannot have anything to do with sin at that level, that close relational level. So there's in effect this barrier that is separating sinful man from a holy God and that's a barrier of sin. You could write sin in that if you're going to draw this out for somebody or share the gospel with them like we do with fair evangelism. So there's this problem. That's what you would want to explain. That's the bad news. Man is in a predicament. See, because God, again, perfectly holy. Man is sinful. The wages of sin is death. That's what it says in Romans 6.23. But the wages of sin or for the wages of sin is death. So that's bad news. Death meaning separation from God. But that's not where the story ends. We're talking about God's, how God met man's past need. He met his need by figuring out a way to deal with man's sinfulness because if the debt that was owed by all men was death, to forever be separated from God, where would that be? Well, be in in the place where God is not. The place that God is not is the lake of fire. Hell a place that was prepared for Satan. But God is not willing. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So he came up with a plan of rescue. So if all men deserve to spend all of eternity separated from God, that's no message of hope. We wouldn't call that good news. We wouldn't have anything to talk about how God met man's need. We would just have ended the story with man has a need and it's a dire need. Man is hopeless and helpless and hellbound without something being done about his predicament. Imagine that. You're, without Christ, you're in the process of drowning. It's like gurgling water out at sea with no land or hope of rescue in sight. That's the predicament that man was in without Christ. But... Romans 6.23 doesn't end with bad news. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Or, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That implies he sacrificed, he gave him as a a gift or a substitutionary payment on behalf of man. He gave his only son. And what did that entail? That entailed Jesus Christ becoming sin for us even though he was sinless so that we could become the righteousness of God through faith in him. So how did he do that? He died in our place by coming to earth, dying on a cross, a physical death, but also he was separated from his father and cried out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as he was nailed to the cross, he wasn't dying or paying a debt he owed. He was dying and paying a debt you owed. He wasn't dying for sins he had committed. He was dying for sins you had committed. So all of your sins were poured out on him. The perfect, innocent, spotless Lamb of God. And as God died in your place, the last thing he said was, it is finished. The sin debt penalty that was owed for all men for all time has now been satisfied by the substitutionary death of an innocent in the place of the guilty. Now the Bible says, how do you get a hold of that? How can I get in on that? Well, it says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have as a present possession everlasting life. You get in on it by putting your trust and confidence in what Jesus Christ has done for you. Now the problem is, a lot of people think they've done that. They say, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on a cross. But what they haven't done is they haven't accepted that Jesus completely took care of the problem that they had. When he died, he didn't partially satisfy the debt that they owed. He completely satisfied the debt that they owed. Such that to try to add some human effort to the work of Christ would be insulting to the work of Christ. It would be a slap in the face to Jesus Christ to say, I believe that Jesus took care of most of my problem. He mostly rescued me. He mostly provided a way. But I must now provide my own way by chipping in my human effort, my religious effort, my attempts at righteousness on my own. You see, that's not accepting by faith alone what Christ has done for you. That's putting some faith in Christ and putting some faith in self. And the Bible says that it's either all grace, meaning God giving you what you don't deserve as a free gift, or it's all works. You have to pick your lane. Sometimes people say, stay in your lane nowadays. You've got to pick your lane. It's either going to be, I'm going to try to make myself acceptable to God on the basis of what I can do for God because of my human effort, my religious effort, my best stuff that I'm going to try to make myself acceptable to God. And if that's your choice, that's fine. You'll stand before the Lord and he'll say, why should I accept you into heaven? What's the credentials that you would have to base entrance into heaven on? He said the standard is perf- perfection. How do, you, how do you meet up to that? The answer is the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in fact, if you understood that Greek word for fallen short, it doesn't indicate that you've fallen a little bit short. It indicates that you're not even hitting the target. So despite your best efforts at making God accept you on the basis of your own efforts, it won't be satisfactory. And God will say, that's insulting to my son because you've rejected my son. Unfortunately, you cannot spend eternity with me. You're going to remain dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, not because the sin wasn't paid for, but because you, refer, you refuse to have the payment of Christ applied to your account. So the money was in the account. It was available to credit to your negative account of unrighteousness. The only thing you had to offer God was your best efforts at righteousness. And the prophet Isaiah said, your best stuff stinks. It says all of our works of righteousness are filthy rags. So you've got a negative bank account. And God says, I've got the money available to credit to your account, to satisfy your account, bring it into a right standing if you just put your faith in what Christ has done for you. So the question becomes, will you receive, will you believe what God has done for you and accept as a free gift the salvation that he alone provides? Because the other lane is complete dependence on God to do for you what you could never do for yourself. You see, for a gift to be a gift, it has to be freely given and it has to be freely received. 
And the question is, will you accept the gift that God offers? That's a separate lane, though, from human efforts. It's one or the other. So for by grace you've been saved through faith, Ephesians says, it is not of yourself. It's a gift from God, and it's not of works, lest anyone would boast. So, so many people, they try to add to the gospel. The moment you try to add to it, it's not the gospel anymore. The reason it's good news is because it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with you accepting what Jesus has already done for you. And that's why it's a plan that can succeed. Because if the plan for rescue depended on you doing your part, you're in tough shape. As I've said before, you can't remember what you were supposed to buy at the grocery store. You're not going to do your part. So when we talk about God having met man's need, that was men's need. And God met that need through the person and work of his son. And here's a verse that I love about this. And I mentioned it earlier. As we're talking about, because the Lord is my shepherd, how does the Lord become your shepherd? You have to put your faith in him. Now you become a sheep of his pasture, a sheep of his sheepfold, a sheep under his care. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. So will you accept that? Faith alone. You can't add works to it. Now what is the result of that decision though? The result of that decision is that you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that because God is faithful that you can have absolute certainty that when you die you're going to go to be with him. In our cabin last night I asked the young boys do you think you can know for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die. And there's one young boy who was there in my cabin. He's been in my cabin for four years straight. As far as I know, he doesn't go to church. As far as I know, the things of faith don't get discussed very often in his life. But I asked him directly, do you think you can know for sure where you'll go when you die? And it almost made me cry because he said, Yes, you can know that. I said, how could you know that? He said, by believing that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again. I said, is there anything you can add to that? He said, no. Could you ever sin too much to outsin God's love? He said, no. Is there anybody who can't be saved? He said, no. Could you ever lose your salvation? He said, no. Now, only God knows his heart. But that's why we do what we do. That's why we invest so heavily in these ministry outreaches. That's why it's worthwhile to be praying for these things, to be asking, how could I be a part of this? Being a, prayer, being a part of the prayer team, you know, I'm not, we don't have an official team. I'm not, I meant you're part of the team by praying. <laughs> you're automatically on the team. You don't have to try out. It, just so you know, uh, <laughs> The way our prayer team works here at this church, <laughs> it's not like a, it's not a grueling competition. If you want to pray, you can be on the prayer team, okay? Uh, we, send out, we send out prayer requests usually weekly. But that's why it's worth praying about. Now, I think the focus, not I think, the focus of Psalm 23 wasn't on how God met me man's past need. You're like, well, you've made it the focus of this message. The focus is because the Lord is my shepherd. This is a believer, a man of faith who's saying this. So because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He's really talking or focused more on how God is going to meet man's present need. I do want to touch just briefly, though, on how God is going to meet man's future need because I feel like that's the full picture of how God meets man's need. He met man's past need. I want to just touch for a second here on how God will meet man's future need in the future. So God's provision for the penalty of sin is inseparable from his provision for your future. He guarantees that every single one that he justifies or declares to be in a right standing with God, justification, fancy word, it means to be declared righteous or to be declared in a right standing. You could think of it in, in terms of having your bank account brought to uh, the black instead of being in the red anymore. 
to be declared to be in a right standing. So as man is, has been declared to be in a right standing, the moment they put their faith in Christ, his blood is applied to their account. They become justified before God. Judicially, the penalty of sin has been satisfied then by the sacrifice of Christ. So there's no penalty for sin hanging over the believer's head anymore. And Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ. So being in Christ, you're in Christ by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You become a Christ one or a Christian. You're now called a child of God. And he says, I'll never let you go. So by being in Christ, you no longer face any fear of the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin was satisfied by the substitution of Christ. And your faith in that finished work, apply that to your account. You're now justified. You're declared to be in a right standing with the holy God. And the only way that man could ever be declared to be in a right standing with a holy God is if someone else's righteousness had been credited to him because man was described as being completely unrighteous. So the way it worked was the righteousness of God was imputed, is another fancy theological term, was imputed or credited to your account and now there's no fear of the penalty of sin because your account is in a good standing with God on the basis of the righteousness of God now clothing you. God says, every single one who is justified, I will glorify in eternity. Meaning, I will give them access to an eternity spent with me in a place that I have provided for them, my forever home, heaven. And they'll live forever in my forever home with me, with my forever love for them. Well, that's a bright future to look forward to. And they're not going to get this on the basis of anything that they've done, but on the basis that I'll never let them go. And so if I'll never let them go and this is where I'm going to spend eternity, then that must be where they're going to spend eternity. Makes logical sense. So every single person who was justified doesn't have to wonder, am I one day going to go to be with the Lord? And of course, we'll see that's how the psalm ends. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We know how the story ends. And so one day, God will glorify or give freedom from the very presence of sin to every person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is a fixed fact. That will happen one day. They're inextricably linked. So you automatically, if you accept one, you automatically get the other. The future of every believer is guaranteed and secured not by your faithfulness, but by God's faithfulness. And that's why the Bible says that though we are unfaithful, yet God remains faithful still. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he might fall, he will not be utterly cast down because the Lord is holding him in his hands. And we saw at the end of Deuteronomy even this picture of the everlasting arms. And we talked, touched on that a little bit in our study of Deuteronomy. And so that is the idea of what the future holds for the believer. And here's a couple of verses that bring that out. That we will one day, God will one day meet man's future need. Most assuredly, this is John speaking again, I say to you, or this is actually Jesus speaking, but recorded by John. He who hears my word, so what's the first part of getting in on this? I need to pick up the pace too, but he who hears my word, what's the second part? Can you, can you believe in something you haven't heard? No, believe means to accept or put your confidence in. In him who has sent me has. Not, not might have. Has is a present possession. Has what? Everlasting life. Everlasting life. Everlasting just means life that doesn't end. And shall not. Does that sound like a maybe, hope so kind of a salvation? This is a no-so kind of a salvation. Your future is secure. Shall not come into judgment, but has already passed from this realm to this realm, from death to life. Peter says it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 3. I must have that wrong. The, the reference exactly wrong. Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now what kind of an inheritance or future does the Christian or the one who has the Lord as his shepherd have to look forward to? An inheritance that is incorruptible, it is undefiled, and it does not fade away. Does that sound like maybe or that's certain? These are words of certainty. 
It's incorruptible, meaning it can't happen. It's undefiled, which means it can't be defiled. It does not fade away. It does not fade away. It does not fade away. That's why theology that suggests that you better mind your P's and Q's or maybe you'll lose your salvation is nonsense. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that our inheritance is guaranteed because of the faithfulness of God, not because of our faithfulness. It's reserved in heaven for you. Now, whose strength keeps us? Who makes that a sure thing? Because we cling to God so tightly? Because we do our part? Because we keep jumping through the right hoops? No. It's reserved in heaven for you. Now, what describes the you? The you who are kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God. Now, how did we get in on it to begin with? Through faith. What did we get out of it? Salvation from the hell we deserve to heaven that we don't. But we're kept by the power of God. We don't keep ourselves. And so that's very, very encouraging. It's a very great reminder. John 14, 1 through 3 is another passage about what the future looks like for the believer and how God, by us being in his sheepfold, by him being our shepherd, we lack nothing. Our future is absolutely provided for and secure. We're not missing anything. Let not your heart be troubled. Now, how did you get in this? You believe in God. That should cause you to believe in me. He sent me as the Savior of the world. But he says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Meaning, I'm going to take you to where I am. That where I am, there you may be also, which just reinforces what I just said. I will come again. Not I might come again. I will come again. That's why I love thinking about it in terms of, in my father's house, there's a place for me. I hope you think of it that way as you're thinking, I lack nothing. I lack nothing for the future. I lack nothing for the past. I now lack nothing for the future, and that's guaranteed. Because in my Father's house, there is a place for me. I don't have to wonder about that. He went to make a place for me, and one day I will go to be with him. So now let's get to the heart of what the author of Psalm 23.1 is getting at. How God meets man's present needs. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I lack nothing for the present either. You see, God having provided a remedy for the penalty of sin and guaranteed, guaranteeing you a bright future in heaven, that's absolutely amazing. I would say it's beyond human comprehension that God would do that for us. That's why I loved our song last month, Me on Your Mind. Who am I? that the king of the world would give one single thought about my broken heart, right? We sang that for several Sundays in a row. It's incomprehensible, really, that God would bankrupt heaven to save me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? If those thoughts never cross your mind, you don't understand exactly what God did for you. But that's amazing, and it's spectacular, and it's beyond comprehension. But yet God's unfathomable love for you moved him to meet every need you have in the past, but also every need that you have in the future, but also every need that you have in this life too. Wouldn't it have been great if God would have just provided for your past, given you access to his family, allowed you to be born into his family, and then provided for your future? That would have been enough, right? It had still been blow your mind. Why would you do that? But he did it. And then he said, and I'll do you one better. I'll provide for your future. And he said, I'll do you one better. I'll provide for every moment of every day in the present as well. That's why I lack nothing because of how much God loves me and wants to provide for me. So when you think about how God meets men's present need, that's what the focus of Psalm 23 is. And as we go through this mini-study, you're going to see that each of those additional clauses are going to bring out details about how God is undertaking to meet man's present need because he's our shepherd. And so we'll touch on it just in an overview fashion here in the next few minutes, but you're going to see those next clauses bring that out more. So um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. So there's a specific. He leads me beside the still waters. There's a specific. He restores my soul. There's a specific. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. There's a specific. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. There's a specific. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Another specific. You anoint my head with oil. Another specific provision of God. My cup runneth over. It's overflowing. Another specific. How does it all end? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's the conclusion. By seeing all of those specific examples of God's provision to meet man's every need in the present. Speaking of men and women of faith, how the shepherd will provide all of your needs so that you can confidently say as the summary statement of the psalm, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Ultimate conclusion, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Such an encouraging psalm. But as we think about some of the overview here, it's going to include things like provision, how God provides for daily needs, instruction, how he instructs us, protection, how he protects us, direction, how he directs us throughout our lives, correction, as he corrects us when we get off off track, restoration, as he restores us into a right relationship with him. And so this is the general overview, I would say, of what's being talked about there. Jesus says, I didn't just come to give them a future. I came so that they could have a present, that life could have meaning. So I have come that they may have life. Now, yes, that life in the sense of eternal life, yes. A a godly quality of life in time, though, also. That they may have it more abundantly to the full right now in time. That's one of the reasons that he came, was to rescue us, yes, but to provide us access to real living. So when you think about these general needs that man has in the present, they can be categorized as physical needs and spiritual needs, just in a real generic sense. And so that's what we'll, we'll focus on here this morning is in terms of overview of what's sort of to come. When you think about the physical needs, though, these are needs that are connected to the temporal realm. They could include emotional needs, relational needs, financial needs, but needs associated with present living. And here's just two passages that I wanted you to see about how God is concerned for meeting your present needs. And you could turn here if you want to, if this is too small for you. It's Matthew 6, 25, and then we're going to go to Matthew 10, so it wouldn't hurt you to go to Matthew because they're just five chapters apart. But Matthew six twenty-five through 30 talks about how God does have this distinct concern for man's present physical needs, not just his spiritual needs, which we'll get to in a second. So here we have Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, question, there's there's no needs that man has in the physical realm? No, he's saying man does have physical needs. He's just going to say you don't need to worry about them because I'm going to provide for your physical needs needs. So he says, is not life more, shouldn't we be focused on something more than food and raiment or clothing that we're going to wear? And he says, why should you have no worry about it? Now this, <coughs> this could include the totality of any temporal human need. Again, relational needs, emotional needs, financial needs. Here it happens to be food and clothing in the direct context. But he says this, why would, why would somebody who knows the Lord as his shepherd and that God has, has provided for his past and future, why would that person ever be concerned about God's provision in the present? It wouldn't make sense. So this is how he explains it. Now look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. So they don't work. They're not worried about it anyway. But yet your father, your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature. Man, I'd be, man, I'd be 100 feet tall if you got taller by worrying. As I've told you, one of the things that I actually struggle with is I am prone to worry. 
That's why I always love songs as a kid that say, Why worry when you can pray? Trust Jesus, he'll be your stay. Don't be a doubting Thomas, rest wholly on his promise. Why worry, 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 worry when you can pray? Uh, Maybe I'll make discs of that so you can get a copy for home. (laughs) You can't add anything to your life by worrying. So why do you worry about clothing, is the conclusion. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He wasn't dressed as fancy as a lily. They don't do anything to be dressed like that in their splendor, their flowering state. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, which has no real value, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? When you're worrying about the present circumstances of your life, it's natural. I'm telling you that I get that. That's something that I struggle with. I'm, I'm admitting that to you. But it's not logical from a perspective of faith as I see that my God is infinite and all-powerful and sovereign in control of everything, that there is nothing that he cannot do. And if I'm convinced that he loves me desperately, then one way or the other, he's going to undertake for whatever physical need I happen to be going through in the present. Do you believe that? Can you grab onto that? Can you collapse into that? Can you flop into a beanbag on that? That's what rest is about. Can you trust that in the moment as you're plagued by hardships and difficulties and trials and circumstances? Can you collapse into his arms trusting that he's going to care for you as it relates to those things? Now, maybe not in the way that the world says represents a glamorous life. Maybe not in the way you were hoping for. But he said, I'll still provide everything that you need. And I also promise that even the things that I don't bring about that are the product of sin in your life or the curse of sin or the world itself or even just natural, the natural hardships associated with life, even those things, I'll work them together for your good. Our Romans 8, 28, God isn't even limited by that. He says, I'll work all things together to good, for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And actually, For the Good is a song that will likely be our song of the month. So if you want to get out ahead of that for next month, For the Good. You can jot that down. For the Good. And it's off of Romans 8.28. He works all things together for the good is the the gist of that song. Next passage, I'll read it quickly. It says the same thing, same idea, just another illustration. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Matthew 10.29-31. through And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very head, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows the number of hairs on your head. He's infinitely interested in you, is the paraphrase. So do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So as you're up against those Red Sea moments in your life, those Goliath moments in your life, those difficult moments, those stormy moments in your life, where... The disciples are in the boat and the boat is being tossed to and fro and they're looking at each other and they're saying, we're going to die! And Jesus is sleeping. And they wake him up and they have the audacity to say to him, don't you even care if we live or die? (laughs) Uh, That's me some days. He left heaven behind to die in their place to experience the agony of being separated from his father for the only time in all of eternity. He cried out in anguish because he loved each of us so much. And when we get into those boats that are tossed to and fro, we'll have the audacity to say, don't you even love me, God? And he's saying, oh, ye of little faith. I love you so much. I'm going to use these storms for your good. I'm going to use them for your benefit. I didn't create the evil of the world. I'm a perfect and good God. I didn't, even, I didn't have anything to do with this circumstance other than I providentially allowed it to happen in the sense that I allow free will, free choice, the consequences that come with some of that. 
but I promise to never leave you or forsake you. I promise to work all things together for your good, even if the thing itself isn't good. I promise that I'll give you rest, I'll give you peace, I'll give you joy even in the face of storms. Can't you just trust me? Grab a hold of me. Stop trying to grab a hold of yourself and your problems and your circumstances. Grab a hold of me for stability in the storm. In any event, that's the physical needs. Now the other category generally that the psalmist is going to be talking about as we work through Psalm 23 2, 3, 4, and 5 in the future is spiritual needs. And these are needs that are connected to the eternal realm and how you relate to and with God in this life. So because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, and that's physical needs. That's also spiritual needs in time. See, apart from God's provision, there is no spiritual life. So I've come that they might have life and they, they might have it to the fullest. God wants us to experience real life. And it's only made possible through his provision for us. And so we'll go through in rapid fashion here a bunch of verses. 1 John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come. For what purpose? We just covered this in 1 John. He has come to give us an understanding that we may know, that's experiential gnosko knowledge there, we will know him who is true. That's why he came, that we could experience life with the one who is true and get to know him. And we are in him who is true when we're walking in fellowship, in his son Jesus Christ. We're identified that way positionally, but we're also having access to that type of a relationship practically when we live life with him. That's the true God. Jesus is the true God in eternal life, meaning a godly quality and manner of life that's available to us in time. 1 Corinthians two eleven through 12, For what man knows the things of man, of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the thing except the Spirit of God. So what has God done to provide for our spiritual need? He gave us his very Spirit. His Spirit gives us discernment and enlightenment. It allows us to understand the things of faith that we otherwise never could even understand. So it's the Spirit of God that God gave to us. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but what did we receive instead? But the Spirit who is from God. For what purpose? That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. God didn't hold back anything. You're not missing out on anything, physically or spiritually, in this life, in the past, or in the future. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. See, God has provided for your spiritual needs. He's done that primarily through empowering you with the power of his very spirit living inside of you to make a life of godliness, a life that mimics his life or is a reflection of his life as he works in you possible. But what's the key to that? I need to allow that to happen. I need to let that happen. How do I do that? I need to get my focus off of myself, get my focus on the author and finisher of my faith. I need to look up, child, I need to look vertically. I need to keep my mind on eternal things. I have to set aside treasures in heaven. I can't be captivated by myself or the world and at the same time expect that God's going to be able to make the changes that he wants to make in my life or produce through me the kind of life that he wants me to live. It's not possible. Last verse in this section. 2 Peter 1, 2 through 4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power it's his power that has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness has God provided for your spiritual needs the answer is yes are you appropriating by faith what God has provided that's a question for every moment of every day now through the knowledge of him who is called us by glory and virtue by which we have been given Again, man doesn't work for or earn any of God's goodness. God gives his goodness as a gift to those who don't deserve it. But he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. You mean I can get in on God's way of living? Yes, his spirit produces that in and through you. Having escaped, what's the alternative? Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So then the natural question is, if God has met man's past need, if God has met man's future need, if, if God has met man's every present need, is there anything that is missing or lacking? So because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Is there anything missing? Well, we just see it right here. We just saw 
all things, not some things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Here's a couple others. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Not some of your need, all of your need. And then I think this is just an absolutely fascinating two passages. They go together. They both involve Jesus sending out the 12. But Jesus, he sent out the 12. So he called the 12 to himself and he began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. So uh, in in that day to authenticate their ministry, they had unique gifts that don't exist today. But before the canon of Scripture was finished and established, there had to be a way of authenticating who was really speaking for God and who wasn't speaking for God. And so they had some special gifts then. He commanded them, though, to take nothing for the journey. Now imagine this. I'm going to send you out on this journey, but you're going to take nothing with you except a staff to walk with. Now what, what did that include? No bag, no bread, no copper, meaning no money in their money belts but to wear sandals. And he says, I know you're going to be tempted to put all your clothes on. Put on two, two layers of clothes. Don't do that. Bring nothing. And imagine God's calling you to serve him and he's saying, I'll provide everything that's needed. Is there anything missing or lacking? I don't know. How does this turn out? This is how it turns out. <laughs> he reminds them of how it turned out because later they were doubting again. And so he reminded them of what had happened back then. So in Luke twenty two thirty five, he says to them, when I sent you out, so in the past, when I sent you out without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And so they said, nothing. Lack nothing. Because the Lord is your shepherd, you lack nothing. You don't need to overpack. You know how you clutter your life? with all this stuff, sometimes out of a fear that you won't have enough. You know, those of you who are still hoarding that toilet paper. God says, did you lack anything? They said, no, nothing. Awesome. So do you need God's provision? This is how we'll end. Do you need God's provision? It says, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Do you actually need that? And the answer is yes. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, passively bears fruit. But without me or for without me, you can do nothing. So do you need God's provision in your present life? Absolutely. Because in Philippians four thirteen he goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So without me, you can do nothing, but with me, you can do everything through my strength. Jesus looked at them and said, With men is it, it is impossible in Mark ten twenty seven, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Second Corinthians three five says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Do you need God's provision in your present life? The reason you can say you lack nothing is because you're not trying to do this on your own. You're allowing him to do it through you. A couple of pages later in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things. Isn't that fun how he just kept saying all? You lack nothing. All sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. You know what an abundance means? More than you need. That's the kind of God you have. A few pages later, also in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, says this, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness, therefore most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's the attitude that Paul had. Is that the attitude that you have? Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Let's say that together. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing lame. Not good enough. Let's do it better. More enthusiasm. I know I've put some of you to sleep. Let's wake up. Okay, I tell the kids, left, 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 right, 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 stretch. Okay, are you back with me? All right. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. 
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this encouraging reminder we've had from Psalm 23. Pray that you'd undertake for the rest of the camp ministry. You'd undertake in each and every one of our lives. Pray that we could get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you and that we'd keep them fixed on you. That we would continue to go through life walking with our heads up, walking with our eyes focused on you, knowing that you have provided absolutely everything that we need for our past, for our present, and for our future. In Jesus' name, amen.